Again, please join me in turning in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. We pick up here where we have left off. We'll be looking this morning at verses 23 to 29. Before we stand here in just a moment and read our passage together, I think it will be helpful for us to preview a bit of what we're going to hear Paul tell us, what we're going to encounter from him. Uh, And that's because some of it can be a bit difficult to understand exactly the point he's going to be making. Uh, We've been wrestling through some difficult uh, technical uh, portions of Paul's writings here in the last couple of months. Uh, And he's going to continue with that, making some fine and specific points. This morning as well, though, we can have some difficulty because we're going to encounter uh, in our English Bibles some words that are used in translation that are good words to use, but words that carry baggage with them that can be distracting or confusing to us. So I I thought it helpful maybe for us to simply preview a bit of what we're going to see before we even stand and read. Um, Here's what Paul's going to be doing for us this morning. He's going to now bring in to this discussion of redemptive history that he's been walking us through for some time now. He's going to bring in a third covenant into the discussion. He has been talking a great deal about the Abrahamic covenant for a couple of months now. He's used the word promise to speak of the Abrahamic Covenant. He's been talking to us about the Mosaic Covenant, and he's used the word law to denote what he is referring to. Uh, Now he's going to bring in a third covenant into the conversation, and just like the others, he's going to name it. He's going to name it according to the most defining feature of it. And so he's going to begin talking about faith here. When he speaks of faith, as we'll see in a moment, he is speaking of the new covenant. So now this morning, this is what's exciting about this morning in Galatians. The new covenant makes its grand entrance into the conversation. We'll see him describe that in some ways in our early verses. And then what he'll do in verses 26 to 29 is he will sum up the effect of the new covenant for us. And primarily that effect, which we're going to see, is that the Jew-Gentile distinction that has uh, been in place due to the Mosaic covenant has reached its completion. It is done. He will say those glorious words to us, there is now then neither Jew nor Gentile. And there's going to be then some things we need to consider and to think about relating to the unity of God's people in light of what he's going to be saying to us this morning. Um, Let's go ahead now and read the text. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'll read Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29 out of the English Standard Version. Paul continues in this way. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We approach this section this morning in in two parts. We're going to see first, in verses 23 to 25, that the promise, he's been speaking of promise now for some time in reference to what was promised in the Abrahamic covenant. We see this morning that the promise arrives in the new covenant. We'll see secondly in verses 26 to 29 that that new covenant brings unity with it. It brings unity in both the vertical and the horizontal realms. This is where he's going to lead us. Look first with me again at verses 23 to 25. The promise arrives in the new covenant. Can I reread these three verses for us? Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The promise of blessing, the promise of the inheritance of God himself by his people, this promise was contained in the Abrahamic covenant. It was guarded in the Mosaic covenant. But it comes to fruition. It comes into reality in the new covenant. Let's look carefully together. We haven't done this yet. The word faith in verse 23. What is he referring to here? He says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. He has been so helpful to us for the past many verses in helping us to know what he's describing by using temporal language. Before this, there was this. There was this until this. He's been very helpful in the way he has described these things. And here he says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Before faith came, what does that mean? It can't mean before saving faith was ever exercised. It can't mean something like that. Before the presence of any saving faith on this planet, uh, what would that even be referring to here? I guess that would be pointing to prior to Adam's creation. Adam After he fell, he trusted in the promises of God. We can see it in the way he named his children and the fact that they had children. Um, There was faith there. Who would have been held captive under the law prior to Adam's creation? It can't mean that, can it? It becomes pretty clear as we consider 23 to 25 here that Paul is using the word faith just like he has used the words law and promise. He's using the word faith to represent a covenant. Remember, he has been explaining the flow of redemptive history here for a while now. And there's a covenant, kind of an important covenant, between God and man that he has not brought into the discussion yet. It's the new covenant. We hear it first prophesied by Jeremiah. Back in Jeremiah 31, you can look there with me if you'd like. Jeremiah 31, 31. It's very handy for us to remember where to go here. Listen to what it says concerning this covenant. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This promise that he has been holding out to them back since the exodus of a time when he would be his people's God, and they would truly be his people, this unbreakable relationship. He promises it will come to pass in this unchanging way in the new covenant. This is a really big deal, isn't it? But Paul hasn't mentioned it yet. He obviously knows about the new covenant. He is a master Old Testament scholar. He refers to the new covenant in 1 and 2 Corinthians, both. But he hasn't mentioned it yet in his discussion with these Galatians about how God's plans have come to fruition through his covenantal interactions. And so he continues here his explanation of the relationship between the historical covenants by coming to the new covenant. You can also tell that that's what he's doing here because he equates the coming of this faith with the coming of Christ. You notice that? Look carefully at verse 23. I'll read it again and I'll emphasize the places I want you to notice. Verse 23 says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You see how he is interchanging between faith coming and Christ coming? This coming of faith is the coming of Christ, whose blood is the new covenant, according to Luke 22.20 and 1 Corinthians 11.25. So the point that he's making here then, in some ways, is not substantially different from some of the things he's been saying before this. He's been showing us before this the relationship between the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Now he's showing us the relationship between the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. And in fact, his emphasis here really is on the law covenant itself. And, and uh, in terms of the content of what he's saying here, you can tell that this is his main, um, his main objective. He's continuing to educate the Galatians concerning things relating to the Mosaic covenant. And if you've been with us, if you remember why Paul's writing this letter, you understand why he keeps emphasizing the law covenant. This is the thing that is tempting to lead them away from simple, utter reliance on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's his emphasis in 23, 24, and 25. 23, before faith came, that's a subordinate clause, that's not the main point. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. There's his point. 24, so then, the law was our guardian. 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. He's trying to tell us something about the law covenant. And we have to do him justice here by making sure that we don't misunderstand him. What is the point that he's making in this particular instance about the Mosaic covenant? I think it's really easy for us to misunderstand him here. And this is the place I was referring to at the beginning when I said there are some words we encounter in these verses that are the right, they're good words to use here, but for us, at least for me, they carry baggage that is confusing. It can be misleading. So here's the question for us to think about, and I'm, I'm especially aiming you at verse 23. 
Is Paul saying something negative about the law here or something positive? And I want to suggest to you that he's not speaking negatively about the law covenant here, despite how verse 23 sounds. He is describing a good function of the law, but one that by very definition showed the law covenant to be temporary in nature. Have we been talking about that for a number of weeks now? He's been making that point to them again and again. The difficulty that we've got here in verse 23 is twofold. We read here that the law, you see what it says about the law? The law has held us captive, he says, and the law imprisoned us. How could that possibly not be a negative statement about the law? Those are pretty bad things. To be imprisoned, to be held captive. But there's some things we need to understand here. First of all, notice with me the first two words of verse 24. I can't speak for every single translation out there, but at least in the ESV, it begins with these two words. So then, you see that? Verse 23 told us something about the law, what it did. And verse 24 tells us what is the nature of the role it's playing for us in doing that. Here's what verse 24 says. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Do you see from that, so then, that the content of verse 23 explains the way in which the law served as our guardian, right? The law did this and it did this, so then it was our guardian until Christ came. You see the relationship. Can you also tell from verse 24 that the law has been a guardian in a way that somehow fostered faith? It continues like this, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, if, if 23 is describing what the law did and that the law imprisoned us and held us captive, and if your mind has all the baggage in it that my mind has with those words, then when I get to verse 24 and he's going to tell me what that means the law was for me, I would expect some different words than guardian. I would expect maybe this. So then, the law was our warden until Christ came. The law was our slave master until Christ came. That's not the words that he uses. We don't get those words. We get the word guardian. And that's not the same thing as a guard. This is not a guard or a soldier. It's a guardian. It's the word pedagogos. It's a pedagogue. This is someone who is responsible for the care of a child. The law did this. It did this. So then the law was a pedagogue until Christ came. A pedagogue doesn't imprison his charge, does he? I don't want, I'm glad my parents never hired that pedagogue for me. It took me and threw me in prison. He does not hold me captive in, in, in a negative sort of way like that, does he? We need to look more closely at the two words in verse 23, in other words, is what I'm saying. Because 23 is telling us something about the nature in which the law was a guardian for us. And I want to suggest to you that the stumbling we might have about that idea here is not one that's the fault of Paul. It's one that comes, again, with some of the baggage that the words have for us in our language. So the first word we see in verse 23, the law held us captive. You see that word? It's the word frureo. And it, it can mean to hold in custody, like in jail. But it can also mean, and often means, in a general way, to provide security or to protect. 
So it's the word that's used that Paul uses in Philippians 4.7. Maybe you have that verse memorized. 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, present your requests to God. What will happen? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will fruereo your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Does the peace of God take my heart and mind and throw them into jail? Is that what it's saying? Of course not. The peace of God guards my heart and my mind. It guards it, not in a negative way, or certainly not a punitive way, in a positive way. It's a common way that this word is used. Uh, Even uh, more often, it's used in a more general sense in terms of maintaining a watch or a guard. So when the authorities station a guard somewhere, this word is used quite a bit. Um, And that may be what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 1.5. He speaks of believers who by God's power are being, this word, are being watched over through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, there's no no concept there of them being uh, being, um, held captive in the way that I think of the term held captive. They're being guarded. They're being watched over. And yet we have the word here uh, that, that, at least for me, again, maybe I'm alone in this, it, it, when I read that we were held captive under the law, I hear that first definition. Held in custody in jail. Now let's keep thinking about this for a moment. Because there's a, there's a very real sense in which that's not an entirely inappropriate thing to say about the law. It's at least similar, I think, to the idea that we get in Romans 3.19. Listen to what Paul says there about the law. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I could see that being something of, an, of, an, of a thrown into jail, something of a, of a uh, do you see what I mean? That's not altogether inappropriate to speak about the law as having that effect on sinners. The question is, does that fit the sense of Paul's context here? Is that the point he's trying to make right now about the law? And again, given that this is described as the work of a pedagogue, a child's guardian, I don't think that's what he's trying to say here the first definition of that word. Now, that second definition I gave you, or even the more general third definition, those absolutely fit the concept of a legal guardian watching over. Now, you may be thinking, well, yeah, but what about the second word here? He also says here that we were imprisoned. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. Imprisoned is... The participial form of the word sunkleo, it means to hem in or enclose. It also means to confine to specific limits or in prison. Now, when you are thrown into jail, you are confined to specific limits, right? So the word imprison fits that word. Is that the only way, sense, situation in which we are confined to specific limits? How can you tell if it's a good thing or a bad thing to be confined to specific limits? You can only tell if you understand the context of where the word is being used. You can only tell if you know where the confinement is. What's the situation? 
He uses the same word in verse 22 right before this. He says there that we are confined under sin. That's a particular uh, confinement, and that's a negative situation in terms of, again, some of that condemning work of the law over sin. But even there, it says the scriptures confined us under sin. The scriptures are not being criticized for doing that. It's not speaking of the scriptures negatively there. Here in verse 23, he says that they are confined under the law. And listen, remember again, this is another way in which the law served as a pedagogue, a guardian. They are confined under the law in the way that a guardian does to protect them from danger. So T. David Gordon writes of this imprisonment or confinement in a very helpful way. He says, such confining is not purposeless, nor is it restrictive in the usual sense of the term. Law or Torah guarded or protected Israel from the defiling idolatry of the Gentiles, preserving a community which propagated faith in the God of Abraham until the promise became historical reality. In other words, it does exactly what he said in our last week that is being served by the law. Another man says this about those two words together. Norman Young says the presence of these two words, frureo, suncleo, in close conjunction, makes it clear that Paul's main point, if not his only point in the, matter, in the metaphor, is not a matter of discipline, education, instruction, or punishment, but of restriction. Now again, it's not that the law doesn't do those other things. It's that that's not the point he's making here. The point we need to understand in all of this is quite simple. When the law did the things that it's described as doing in verse 23, it was serving to guard the people of God like a pedagogue. And most importantly, in terms of what Paul's trying to say to us here, like a pedagogue, this purpose was only necessary for a limited time until maturity was reached. Another reason you can tell that that's what Paul's doing here is that that's exactly what he says his purpose is, just a couple of verses down. Listen to Paul in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I mean that, and again we say thank you, Paul, for this helpful stopping and making, he's done this before, hasn't he, in Galatians. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Look, Paul has done all that he can do to really spell out for us exactly what he means about the law here, about this guardian. And it's in the conclusion he draws in our passage in verse 25 as well. Look at verse 25. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. It's not at all like, uh, it's not at all unlike, excuse me, uh, and, and actually, Tom Schreiner likens it to this. It, I think it, it can sound like it belittles the point a little bit, so I hesitate. But I think it's a helpful image for us in our context. It's not at all unlike a babysitter, the role that a babysitter plays. The law of covenant served God's people, if you'll permit it, as a babysitter. When you grow into maturity... It's not that you then stop doing anything and everything that babysitter had ever told you to do. It's not that you stop eating peas just because the babysitter has made you eat peas in the past and now you have matured past that point. 
It's that you don't need the babysitter any longer. If you're in your 20s and you're calling the babysitter tomorrow night to come take care of you and to feed you your peas, then, I mean, there's several problems there, but that means you're very immature, doesn't it? And in light of Galatians 4.2, in light of what Paul's going to say in terms of his argument, it means you're not yet a mature adult who is in ownership of the inheritance. That's where he's driving us here. Galatians, you want to go back to the babysitter? The inheritance comes to those who have arrived at a certain point of maturity, and that maturity looks like utter and complete reliance on the finished work of Jesus Christ. All of this was leading you to that point, driving you to despair in your efforts, causing you to see the perfections of God, protecting the line of the one promised seed in whom there's any hope to begin with. And now that he's come, maturity is following after him. Go, you don't go back from that. Now, before we move on to verse 26, I would have us draw out one application from Paul's statements here about the law covenant. We've talked a little bit about this already in this study, but I think we can say a little bit more at this point. That covenant consisted in laws, customs, activities, and in its entirety, that covenant was a provisional covenant. This is the whole point Paul has been making here. This is the reason, you think of us today in 2021, this is the reason that we are careful to read and apply Old Testament commands, for example, only after first considering their covenant historical setting and context. Have you stopped lately to wonder why actually it is that we would do that? Why it is that there are commands in the Old Testament that we would look at, read, understand, and then not do in exactly that way that it's written there? Why would we do that? Well, it's because of a number of things. We usually simply say, because Christ has come and fulfilled those things. But the point that Paul would have us understand here is there's something about the nature of this Mosaic covenant and its temporariness that is the explanation for that. I appreciate, I mentioned Tom Schreiner before about the babysitter. I appreciate how he puts this. Let me read to you a quote from him. He says, of course, all the Old Testament is part of sacred scripture and is authoritative for believers. Still, the application of laws in the Mosaic Covenant to today must be discerned in light of the entire story of redemption culminating in the coming of Jesus Christ. He's exactly right about that. We could think of a number of examples. Just to give you one this morning, an easy one, I think, is the practice known as tithing. Tithing. What? Maybe we think of that in very general terms, in terms of giving to the church. Are we commanded in the era of the new covenant to give in support of God's church and his work? The answer is yes, absolutely we are. On the other hand, tithing speaks very specifically of a particular mosaic activity with particular stipulations given to a particular people in a particular context, in a particular covenantal context. That context, which has, according to Paul, now passed away. So we don't just go into the book of Leviticus, read a tithe command, and decide that that's all the consideration we need to do regarding things like how to give, how much to give, what to give. Our approach is not that simple. And that's just one example. Of course, there are many others. 
All of the Old Testament scripture is binding on God's people as scripture. All of it contains and reflects the wisdom of God and prophesies to the coming Savior. It is not binding on us as law code. There are some roles the law was to play for God's people until the coming of Christ. That's the reason that for Paul, in these verses and the ones before it, we have all of these iterations of words like until, until, until. Now, moving into verse 26, the second thing we're going to see here about this new covenant, and we'll see it in pieces, uh, but all throughout 26 to 29, we see that the new covenant brings unity in both the vertical and horizontal realms. Look with me first at verses 26 and 27. He says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's a significant shift in this verse at this point, and it's one that can be easy to miss. We have to remember what Paul's doing in this entire letter. He is writing to at least a mostly Gentile body. But it's a mostly Gentile body that is being tempted toward Jewish law-keeping. Right? So he has needed to make clear, and he has been for a while now, uh, to make clear the actual condition and situation of the Jewish people in redemptive history. And their self-same need of something beyond the Mosaic Covenant. He's been having to explain that to these Gentiles who are being tempted by the Mosaic Law. That's what he's been explaining. But it's all been leading toward something else. It's all leading toward the reality he's trying to encourage them toward which is the reality of the complete unity and equality in Christ that comes through faith in him. That's why nothing else is necessary. Now, here's the the, the shift that I'm, I'm talking about. While verses 23 to 25 are full of the pronoun we, did you notice that? Speaking of the Jews and their particular time period of guardianship, I mean, it's what he's been explaining. In verse 26, he begins to come to his main conclusion of Jew-Gentile equality. And notice that he now starts speaking of you. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He's not made that jump because that does not apply to Jewish believers. He's made that jump because this verse starts with the word for. This is the explanation. The reason that the Jews' time of guardianship has ended is because the Christ has arrived. And all those whose faith is in him alone are sons of God. The fact of Gentile inclusion now in all of these promises is the reason that the guardianship has come to an end. Now he says this, uh, notice, through faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Of course, it is true that our personal faith in Christ is the means uh, through which we receive Christ. But when when Paul mentions faith in verse 26 here, you are all sons of God through faith, it is likely that he is still using that term in reference to a covenantal reality. He's still using that term to refer to the new covenant. Remember, the whole reason that he calls the new covenant faith is because faith is the defining feature of that covenant. It's not as if you can separate our faith in Christ Jesus with the new covenant itself in those ways. He's not trying to do that. 
what he's emphasizing here is that there is one covenant that actually brings us into sonship with God. And one of the reasons that many see Paul as still using the word faith here to speak about a covenant is what he says next in verse 27. He continues by saying this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is the visible marker of entry into the new covenant. Now, be very clear that baptism does not bring you into the new covenant. Circumcision of heart brings one into the new covenant. But baptism is the visible marker God's given us that mark off those of the new covenant. To paraphrase Romans 10, 9, new covenant members are those who believe in their heart that God raised Christ from the dead and publicly confess Christ as Lord. When we stand before God's people and go through the waters of baptism, we are confessing that Christ is Lord and that he has uh, revealed that to me and given me faith. And Paul says here in verse 27 that if that is you, then here's what's true of you. You are clothed with Christ. The verb there for put on is literally and specifically a putting on of clothing. You have put on Christ as a garment. You take a room full of Jews, Gentiles, slaves, freemen, men, women. Cover them all with the blood of the true Passover lamb. And you have a room full of people who are qualified to come joyfully into the presence of God. Equally qualified. It's a pretty powerful declaration. And, of course, it's what he's talking about in verses 28 and 29 as well. Look with me there. Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are of Christ's, excuse me, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He speaks of three distinctions here. You notice that? It's an ethnic distinction distinction of freedom status, and a gender distinction. To do his words justice, we have to understand that speaking of that threefold category grouping like he does here was an extremely common thing to be done in his time and for a long time before Paul. He's not creatively coming up with three examples of distinctions here. He's tapping into a threefold combination that has a lot of history to it influential writers that affected culture, and across cultural lines, in fact, we see this. Uh, Speaking of those three designations specifically by Paul's day. So it's a line of thought that would have been extremely well known. Uh, We have evidence of this all the way back to the 6th century BC. A Greek writer named Hermippus is recorded as saying this. Ladies, you're going to love this. He was grateful to fortune that he was born a human being and not a beast, a man and not a woman, a Greek and not a barbarian. That's 6th century. Socrates and Plato are both recorded as saying essentially the same thing. They had a little bit of impact on writing and writers and culture, just a little bit. Uh, And in Paul's world, in the Jewish world, one of the common Jewish morning prayers we have, it's recorded for us, uh, has the Jewish man giving thanks to God that God did not create him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. 
Now that sounds really bad, doesn't it? For our sensitivities. It sounds bad. It sounds bad. It, well, it sounds far worse than it is if we understand a particular clarification. This is very important to know what, Paul, what point Paul is making in these verses. Uh, many have written about this. I read F.F. Bruce make this point. Here's what he says. And again, hear this in light of what Paul's saying in verse 28. Right? Uh, Bruce is talking about that Jewish prayer. Thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. He says this, The reason for the threefold thanksgiving was not any positive disparagement of Gentiles, slaves, or women as persons, but the fact that they were disqualified from several religious privileges, which were open to free Jewish males. You understand the point and why that's so significant to, to get what Paul's saying here? In the Jewish context, there is thankfulness because of the increased access to God's worship that comes from being a free male Jew. When we understand that, Paul's comments here can come into full clarity. And it's a profound point. It even further underscores the significance of Christ coming now and of the new covenant. The profound point he's making is that none of those distinctions now have any impact in one's ability to draw near to God in worship. This is about equality in our standing before God. He says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's verse 28. The consequence of that reality is verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So equality in union in Christ, verse 28, and therefore equality in the inherited eternal life, verse 29. Now that inheritance is really what we're going to focus on next week as we come into chapter 4. What I want us to notice this morning is something else. If that is what Paul is describing in verse 28, then it is both inaccurate and unfair treatment of Scripture to try to make that verse say something more than that. Maybe you know what I'm getting at. Verse 28 is one of the more mishandled verses of the particular generations represented in this room this morning. We have not done well with verse 28. People have fallen over themselves to take Paul's statement here, and I'm thinking especially of the words, no male and female, to try to make Paul in Galatians 3.28 contradict Paul everywhere else in Scripture. There are several places in Paul's writings where God's plans for men and women, his intended roles for them within church and family, and kiddos filling out that note sheet, the last word is right there, roles, roles. God's intended roles for them within church and family are the actual subject of instruction in those places. To take his statement here of no male and female to speak to social realities in human society or in God's um, um, institutions that he has given us is simply out of place for the reasons that we've already mentioned. One commentator described this very well. He makes, and I want to read this to you, not just because of how he describes that, but he makes a connection that we have to understand in our own minds as well. 
He said this, Paul affirms the oneness of males and females in Christ, but he does not claim that maleness and femaleness are irrelevant in every respect. If one were to draw such a conclusion, then Paul would not object to homosexuality, but he is clear that homosexuality is sinful. In the same way, the equality of men and women in Christ does not cancel out, in Paul's mind, the distinct roles of men and women in marriage, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2, or in ministry contexts, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, 1 Timothy 2. He's exactly right. It would be utterly unfair for us to use his statements here in such a way. But I especially appreciate the connection that he makes there in his statement between the feminist hermeneutic and the way that a feminist hermeneutic would treat verse 28 here and the eventual acceptance of homosexuality. And if you think that that's an unfair connection, you just need to read feminist commentators in places like these and what have come to be called queer commentators. It's a whole line. I just read from the queer Bible commentary this last week. Bible interpreters who push the homosexual agenda onto Scripture use the exact same passages and the exact same reasonings and arguments which they inherited from those pushing the feminist agenda a few decades before them. There is no getting around it or denying it. If we allow ourselves to read into Paul's words so as to pit Paul against Paul, there is one loser in that outcome, and it is scriptural inerrancy and authority. And I mean, I read things this week I couldn't even share with you today in a Bible commentary. Some of the tamer are the celebrations that just as there's no male or female, so there's no gay or straight, it's neither queer nor unqueer, is that how he put it? But just um, offensive and disturbing. But you go paragraphs up and see how they get there, it's the same. We need to be aware of that connection. If we handle Scripture faithlessly in a particular context, it will not end there in its consequences. It will bleed. But let's not end there this morning. Let's end in celebration of the truth that that Paul is declaring to us here. In the economy of Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of God, there are not first and second class citizens. There aren't subgroups We draw closer to God than the rest. No, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Because he was the true heir of God's promises, and if we are in him, then we too will share in his glorious inheritance. That's worth celebrating this morning, isn't it? And we have further cause and further uh, opportunity to celebrate before us this morning. One way that the Bible describes The receipt of that inheritance is by picturing us as sitting down together with him at his table, feasting as a family. In fact, that's the reason why the ordinance of communion is also called the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table. And I would invite the musicians to go ahead and come forward. The the Lord's Table leads us to do several things, to remember and meditate on, and this morning even participate in the realities of this new covenant. So we take the bread and the cup, and we do it even as Jesus did with his disciples on the night he instituted the ordinance. We do it in remembrance of him. 
But we don't just look backward in this corporate celebration of ours, do we? We look forward as well. Uh, as, in fact, Jesus was doing when he said in Matthew 26, 29, you remember when he said this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is anticipation. There was forward looking for us to enjoy together here as well. We sit with him at his table. And he'll say in Galatians 4, 7, you are no longer a slave but a son. This great work our Savior did for us as ruined sinners, didn't he? This great work he did for us while we were yet sinners. What a Savior we worship. And what a Savior we fellowship with when we gather at his table.